CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It was weird when we first started because I kept saying that we're a proof of reserves company, but people didn't think that was very useful because, well, there aren't that many exchanges out there, so what is your total addressable market? But the thing I kept trying to communicate was that you as an individual are in the same category as a custodian, as an exchange, as an institution, and you have a lot of the same needs as a bank. Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Nexo.io, Circle, and Kraken, and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Wednesday, December 28th, and today I am speaking with Sam Abbasi, the CEO of Hoseki. Before we get into that, however, if you are enjoying The Breakdown, please go subscribe to it, give it a rating, give it a review, or if you want to dive deeper into the conversation, come join us on The Breakers Discord. You can find a link in the show notes or go to bit.ly slash breakdown pod. All right, friendos, well, this is an interview I'm really excited to share. One of the things I've been finding in talking with folks in the wake of FTX is that a big part of where continued inspiration is coming from is from the entrepreneurs that remain here working on really important problems. And Sam and Hoseki are a really great example of that. Hoseki is a proof of reserves platform that helps people demonstrate that they have the Bitcoin they say they do. This is obviously a problem space that has much more discussion because we're all understanding it to be even more important than it might have once seemed. In this conversation, Sam and I get into all of that and so much more, so let's dive in. All right, Sam, welcome to The Breakdown. How are you doing, sir? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for this conversation. I think, uh, I think it's particularly relevant right now, and I'm sure you're living inside that. But for those of you who aren't familiar with you, uh, I'd love to hear just a little bit about who you are, how you got into the Bitcoin space, and, and what you're building right now. Yeah, so um, I've been in the space for about five years or so, working on a plethora of different projects from sort of like crypto-based projects to enterprise blockchain-related things to Bitcoin only, which is what I've been focusing the last two years or so on. Uh, most recently came over from Fidelity, doing some open source work and some work with partnered institutions, uh, mainly on proof of reserves. And, uh, and then I found myself starting a company focused on that um, short, shortly after. So, so this is, I, I think we were just discussing a little bit before we fired this up, uh, obviously kind of a, a poignant moment to be discussing proof of reserves, but um, maybe let's start with, with how you started to get interested in this, right? Entrepreneurs have a million different things that they could spend their time on. What was it about the specifics of, of this sort of area that, that attracted you to kind of focus here? Yeah, I 
was honestly just sort of captivated by the simplicity of proving ownership of assets. Bitcoin does a lot of different things. I think one of the most most important things it does is uh, making itself auditable. Uh, it's incredibly auditable. Um, it provides assurances that just don't exist in any other asset class. And when I realized that that's a really under sort of utilized part of the system that you know just screamed to me that there is an opportunity here. But I think it's also a natural progression of how this space and how this asset can evolve. Like proving ownership of an asset is a basic characteristic of any asset class. So that's one of the best things about building this is I can communicate that to anyone, no coiner, pre-coiner, uh, and, and people deep in the space, and they can understand what the purpose of the software is and what the purpose of the company is. So I just saw something that I thought was incredibly important um, that exists in any other part of the financial industry um, that didn't exist in Bitcoin, and I thought it was incredibly necessary. Were you starting this around the same time that there was a growing discussion of sort of Bitcoin as a reserve asset and you had sort of, you know, because you said a couple of years ago, that's sort of right around when Sailor was first making his buys with MicroStrategy and people were talking about Bitcoin on the balance sheet. Was that sort of around that time that you were thinking about this? Yeah, that's exactly it. That's actually a great way to frame it too. This was, um, so I was working at Fidelity right when COVID hit. And so that was when Sailor got involved. That's when this whole that's when Bitcoin seemed like it was kind of becoming more mature. Uh, when I was working on it, it was still more of like this. Um, I mean, it still is, but it was. It, it really was more of like a fringe cypherpunk thing, or, or maybe, maybe the cypherpunk aspect was being diluted a bit, but it was still quite fringe. And so here I was working on Wall Street in a climate that was trying to sort of make this asset more mainstream, quote unquote, maybe legitimate. And so I don't have any background in traditional finance at all. This is my only experience on Wall Street. And so I needed to understand it from a very sort of first principle simplistic uh, perspective, which was, yeah, reserves, just proving ownership, um, which again is, is just such a critical thing. Like this is something that people in developing markets lack as well. Uh, Bitcoin does an amazing thing where it gives you, it gives us uh, property rights without that monopoly on violence, which is incredibly novel. And so people in the global South own property, they own assets, but they don't have a way to actually express ownership of it. And so it was a combination of seeing the asset mature my perspective on Bitcoin, which is like this weird thing that I'm trying to sort of still communicate, which is that we are sort of this like third world global south digital citizens. And what are the steps required in order to make this more uh, useful over time? Interesting. So is it fair to say that the perspective that you have on this is like, this is an intrinsic aspect of Bitcoin, this auditability. However, it still requires infrastructure to have that auditability be useful in practice as Bitcoin sort of interacts with the world. Yeah, and, and infrastructure is a great word. I, I keep using like wrappers and good experiences. I, I relate this most closely with like multi-signature custody regimes. So companies that help people hold their funds in more secure multi-sig. That's something Bitcoin natively does. You don't need a company to do that. But there are these brilliant companies that have built incredible experiences and services around that. And so you've now packaged this native functionality of the protocol and you're distributing it in a very efficient and effective way. And so, again, I just I still see that missing when it comes to proving that you own these assets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is one of the central pillars of this sort of entire space is verification over trust. And it's sort of, you know, a necessary prerequisite. I think, as we've seen this year 
<laughs> having systems that sort of can verify clearly. I mean, there's so much debate surging right now, which maybe we'll, we'll pause it before we fully get into for the, the moment that we had right now. But, you know, so, so you started this. So the, the app is called Hoseki or the platform is called Hoseki. Uh, what were kind of the initial steps? Uh, you know, what was the, the initial build process like? When exactly did you start it? And kind of, you know, where have you been, you know, to date? Yeah, we started about a year and a half ago. And so we've just been building the platform. There's a lot of infrastructure that's involved. Um, we want to build most of the stuff that we do in-house, if not all. Um, and so that takes some time and then building the team as well. Um, and then finding out sort of use cases beyond our initial go-to-market, which was mortgages. The mortgage use case is pretty straightforward. You go to a broker or you go to a bank and you want credit, but you happen to have the majority of your net worth in Bitcoin and they just don't know how to assess that or verify that. Um, so even with the verification, it's tricky because that's like bordering on um, the nefarious part of the space where we need to maybe scrub and clean the record of these assets and prove that you are the owner of the entire historical record. For us, it's not that at all. For us, it's sort of communicating and extending uh, the basic freedom and rights that Bitcoin gives us. So brokers are a brilliant use case and have been for me because typically when you approach them, someone else holds your assets. So you may you know, have some income, you may have some stocks, and you show them a fidelity statement, for example, and they're inclined and they're going to trust that statement because it's Fidelity, it has a letterhead, it's a big faceless institution that has that trusted brand name. But now the narrative is flipped. As someone who holds your own keys, you are effectively an institution, but they don't know how to handle that. And so for us, it was sort of exploring that a little bit more deeply. Okay, we know it's a problem in mortgages. Where else is this a problem? And it turns out that it's a problem for people that want to get visas and residency applications. Even in the judicial space, we were helping someone get custody of their children. Most of his net worth was in, was in Bitcoin. He had no way to prove that and have that assessed. So it's more like practical everyday things. But um, yeah, it's been an incredible journey. Uh, it was weird when we first started because I kept saying that we're a proof of reserves company, but people didn't think that was very um, sort of useful because, well, there aren't that many exchanges out there. So what is your total addressable market? But the thing I kept trying to communicate was that you as an individual are in the same category as a custodian, as an exchange, as an institution, and you have a lot of the same needs as a bank. We keep saying that you are your own bank if you hold your keys, but I didn't have any banking services. I still don't really have any banking services as a bank. And so it's been about sort of exploring the true need for, for this basic financial plumbing that we've been, we've been trying to build. Super interesting. So, I mean, it sounds like your experience was a lot of people, their starting assumption was that the market for this was institutions or enterprises that needed to prove reserves in some way. But in fact, in the Bitcoin ecosystem, by definition, individuals are sort of functioning like those institutions. And a lot of the sort of primary use cases are uh, more on the individual level. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, the exchanges and the institutions, they have a need for this. You know, a lot of this comes from, um, I did my small part writing a paper with uh, Deloitte, KPMG, Nick Carter, and a few other folks with the uh, Chamber of Digital Commerce on proof of reserves. And the conclusion of that paper was that, well, it hasn't become an industry standard because customers haven't been demanding uh, transparency from their institutions. And so it's, I think, a bit of an uphill battle. It's also an obvious thing for them to use. But I think in terms of like growing the industry and really realizing Bitcoin's utility for human freedom and, and, and for true financial sovereignty, um, it's retail. That's actually where I'm focused. In an ecosystem where innovation is the norm, it's the basics that are in the spotlight. 
Nexo is a company that has never put the safety of clients' funds in question. With over 50 global licenses, $775 million in insurance, and a real-time audit of custodial assets, Nexo sets an example for security standards in the industry. Apart from keeping their 5 million clients safe, Nexo has kept building. They've just announced their non-custodial smart wallet. Visit nexo.io, that's N-E-X-O and sign up today. This episode is brought to you by Circle, the sole issuer of USDC and a leader in crypto that's held to a higher standard. USDC is a fast, safe, and efficient way to send money around the globe. USDC is always redeemable one-to-one for US dollars and has over $45 billion in circulation as of October 13th, 2022. Plus, Circle posts weekly reserve reports and monthly attestations of reserve capital, letting users know that USDC is safe, transparent, and compliant with regulations. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to see why USDC is a trusted stablecoin. Kraken Pro is an all-new, powerful trading experience for advanced traders. Spot trade, margin trade, and stake, all from a single interface. With customization tools unlike any other, Kraken Pro lets you set up your trading interface in the exact way you want. It's all backed by Kraken's industry-leading security and award-winning client engagement teams that are available for support 24-7. No matter how you like to trade, Kraken Pro is built to make it happen. Visit pro.kraken.com or download the Kraken Pro app on Google Play or the Apple App Store today. How have the last couple of months post-FTX or perhaps earlier in the year, too, with, with other institutions, how have they changed uh, the narratives, the discussions around proof of reserves, sort of in your mind, broadly speaking, but also specifically as it relates to to what you're building? It's It's been night and day. Um, I think as someone who's a bit more skeptical, typically, that's uh, that sort of informs how I do things in the world. But um, it's been night and day. It's, it's gone from sort of this being something that we might have on our roadmap in two to three years to something that we need to address, you know, yesterday. So that's been good. Uh, Proof of reserves has been around since, you know, I think 2013 or 12, like since the early days. But 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 now it's, I mean, CNBC had, they have headlines that have the word proof of reserves in there. So, so it, it, it has been um, incredible. So it's been good on that end where there's more awareness around the fact that this thing exists and the fact that institutions can and should be transparent because it's trivial to be uh, transparent using using Bitcoin. So that's the positive. The negative, I think, is that the messaging has been a little bit sort of diluted. I think people are using the wrong terms when they mean something different entirely. And of course, I think some institutions are being a bit opportunistic and and, and doing things that they're calling proof of reserves when they're not actually proof of reserves. So this was my fear as it sort of started. And, you know, I, I'm more optimistic than pessimistic in general, but there definitely feels like there could be a, a let's call it an Inigo Montoya moment. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means with proof of reserves and almost like a proof of reserves washing sort of moment. Um, and certainly you see, you know, that happening with exchanges. I mean, how much is that? Let's try to parse out, I guess, and for you, how much of that is opportunistic marketing, purposeful obfuscation? versus messy complexity applying one proof of reserves across multiple crypto assets plus sort of what the demand is becoming for consumers, which is really sort of extensive audits that include proof of reserves, but also include other things in terms of customer balance segregation, all these sort of things. You know, what are all the what's the full panoply of, of problems, I guess, right now with sort of the, the way that we're discussing this? 
I think the place to start is incentives. I mean, these things are incentive-based. Um, exchanges are not really incentivized to prove the reserves. That's why they haven't done it historically. Like I said, customers haven't demanded um, that they do so. We, we, we sort of concluded with, with two approaches on how transparency can or maybe should be achieved. One is consumer demand, uh, which doesn't exist. The other, which is the less preferable option, is um, regulatory regimes. So being forced to be compliant, which we don't really want to see a future where that happens. And the frustrating part is that we can be self-regulatory here. It's again, it's it's a very simple thing. Uh, the standards are, are 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 out there. I mean, there isn't you know, to call them standards is is, is, is even a bit too heavy-handed. I think um, it's a very natural part of what Bitcoin does. And if I can explain like why really quickly, because uh, this mental model has helped other people too. A, a Bitcoin transaction is like a physical check in the sense that it's a two-step process. One is, you know, you sign the check, you put a signature on the check. And the second is that you take that check to the bank for funds to move. Doing any one of those things doesn't move funds. So if you take a check to the bank that doesn't have a signature, it's not valid. Funds aren't going to move. The signature is what uh, verifies that, that this is a, a valid thing. It's, it's the person who owns these funds is authorized for them to move. Uh, but similarly, if you have a signed check on your desk, um, that's valid and you never take it to the bank, then the funds don't move either. A Bitcoin works in the exact same way. You uh, generate a signature on the transaction and then you broadcast that to the network, which is tantamount to taking that to the bank. That signature is what verifies that you have the authority to spend these UTXOs or to destroy them and create new UTXOs. So every time we spend Bitcoin, we're, we're kind of taking part in this process. It's really just a matter of dissecting that small bit outside of the transaction flow and then just verifying that this is accurate. The self-regulatory part is frustrating because it can be done easily. I think it's more opportunistic. I, I think exchanges, uh, I mean, some of the steps competitive advantage as well. Uh, if your competitor isn't being transparent about the reserves, it seems like you're losing a lot by doing so. So I go down to basic, you know, capitalist incentives here. If they're not being forced to, if they don't have a real benefit to doing so, they're probably not going to do it. And the benefits aren't that clear right now. Um, I think the terminology isn't doing anyone any favors either. I think using the term proofs is difficult. I think for Bitcoiners, it's a little bit precarious because the only other time they hear proof of is usually proof of stake or proof of something else, which to them is scams. So this being called proof of reserves and a proof of solvency and a proof of liabilities just kind of muddies it even further. Um, so unfortunately, it's a, it's a hodgepodge of different things. Super interesting. How much do you think that the answer to that is one sort of... Um consumer education or sort of community learning in terms of discussing things, having this sort of normalized and and kind of consumer demand-based, i.e. Uh, customers saying we're not willing to work with a centralized exchange or a centralized custodian that doesn't have sort of something like this in place versus is this a spot where uh, there's actually a common sense regulatory regime? Because, you know, presumably going into 2023, one of the big things that is going to be debated even more now is what the regulatory regime across, you know, sort of different crypto assets and particular centralized custodians looks like. And I think that one of the things that I find often is that there's actually kind of more consensus among people in the Bitcoin space and among the crypto industry around what common sense rules look like around uh, those centralized sort of custodians. Is this one that you think fits in that regulatory regime or should it be entirely kind of market pressure? Yeah, I mean, I'm really cautious with this because I it is scary when legislators come in and just start drafting different things. Um, granted, I, you know, we have like um, the Lummis bill, for example. I mean, we we do have innovative and forward thinking and friendly people in government. And I've been having conversations with with offices of, of senators in the last couple of weeks, and I've been pleasantly surprised. So there are people that are, you know, quote unquote allies. Um, again, I, I do want to be cautious about 
sort of uh, granting more power or advocating for more power on their end um, if we can help it. I think it's probably going to come down to hopefully some sensible legislation and or more pain. I personally would prefer more pain because, again, I just don't want legislation to exist. Um, and I think pain is good. It keeps it makes the body stronger. You know, like one of the worst things that happened in this last year was that millions lost billions. Um, but one of the best things that happened was that millions lost billions. I, I think a lot of this, unfortunately, is a learning experience. Um, I hate to see people sort of suffer, but a lot of the times it's just a necessary component of or necessary part of maturation. I think it's super interesting. Totally reasonable answer. Let's actually use that as a, as a kind of moment to zoom out. How would you summarize Bitcoin's year in 2022? I think it's more crypto, frankly. I think Bitcoin's been fine. I think it's, I mean, Bitcoin itself, like, like truly like the network and the asset I think is unaffected. Um, I think it's more about the crypto industry. And, and, and I think that has been separate from Bitcoin. I think we've seen that um, in the last couple of months. Uh, so I, I would say Bitcoin hasn't really changed. I'd say I think we're at an inflection point with the industry overall, um, which encompasses much more than Bitcoin and sort of why are we here and what are we trying to accomplish? I think we're at sort of like a, and maybe maybe a, a point of an identity crisis. Kind of building off that then, everyone right now is sort of heading into 2023 after what was sort of a blistering, you know, head spinning year. What do you think a successful 2023 looks like for Bitcoin specifically? And what does it take to get there? I think stuff that we're already doing. I mean, I think privacy tech building on that. Um, maybe, maybe what we're realizing is that we're actually, and, and this might be sort of a cliche, but maybe we're actually quite early. And, and I mean, like uncomfortably early. If we're still going through these cycles of scams um, and we still have this crazy price fluctuation as a result of it, then, you know, maybe this isn't a three to five year play. Maybe this really is a 10 to 20 year play, which uh, wouldn't be great for a lot of people and a lot of companies, but that may just be where we're at as an industry. Um, I think in terms of Bitcoin development, though, yeah, I mean, privacy and scaling tech um, is working nicely. It's working slowly, but I mean, that's sort of how Bitcoin development sort of happens. So I think as long as we keep building what we think is useful for a longer term uh, perspective and a longer term sort of outlook on the industry, then I think we'll be fine, mainly privacy and uh, scaling. What makes you most nervous or pessimistic for next year? Um, a crazy bull run and um, an outcome where we just didn't really learn from our mistakes. I think people are hopeful. I think, you know, there's a little bit of opium with respect to there being a lot of demand for Bitcoin and there actually not being as much Bitcoin as people expected, right? There's, uh, there's just less supply that people expected, um, but there was all that demand. So theoretically, price should sort of hockey stick afterwards. But um, and that would be great in a lot of ways, but I think it would be terrible as well. I, I really think we need to learn. I think it almost feels like we're uh, like we're an addict trying to get sober, and and we still haven't checked into rehab. <laughs> That's a great analogy. All right, flip side of that same question: What makes you sort of optimistic? Um, the fact that there's so many people still building, and, and you know, I I focus on the Bitcoin end, so I know that happens in, in other in other parts of the industry too. But you know, the fact that people seem relatively unperturbed, at least people that are serious about building the space. Um, they are, they truly are low time preference and they're incredibly optimistic. So I'm, I'm optimistic about the people that are still here and that I know will be here because they're building things that will ultimately matter. Awesome. Well, maybe on that, just a, a fun one to kind of close us out is if you could fund any one Bitcoin company or initiative, uh, sort of at any price, what would it be? Ooh, I'm going to have to give you more of like a vague answer. Unfortunately, I would fund the community projects. Um, I was just in El Salvador 
I think it's interesting. I think there's a lot of marketing around it uh, as well. I, I think some of it's justified, some of it isn't. But, you know, I can tell you, I, I went there last year and this year, and in a year, the country genuinely, like the infrastructure looks significantly better. I don't know if that's Bitcoin alone. Maybe that's as a result of other policy changes. But sort of as someone who, who like a lot of my mind is focused on the global south. And so I see Bitcoin financialized here in the West. Amazing. That's great. But this is supposed to be something that delivers financial freedom to the world. And and maybe I'm trying to run before we can crawl. But um, I'm always focused on on places in the global south and how we can develop true community efforts there. So no one project in particular. But if there is a project that focuses on allowing people in the global south to custody Bitcoin in more efficient ways and allow them to use that within their local community and localizing that as much as possible is something I'd be behind. Super interesting. Yeah. The, just going a little tangent on that. I think that one of the remarkable things as a new technology comes into um, uh, these parts of the world is the extent to which tiny little bits of funding can support sort of like massive upticks in infrastructure and adoption, sort of largely driven by uh, communities. I mean, we've we've seen this over and over and over again. You know, usually it's sort of left over in the um, social impact, social change side of the world. But you know, uh, people accessing new technologies, you know, in small amounts of funding that goes directly into communities can have pretty remarkable impact. So it'd be interesting to see sort of Bitcoiners get behind more of that directly. I think. Especially because, you know, such small amounts could go so far. That is just learning how other people sort of treat the asset. Um, it is it is quite different. For example, in Bitcoin Beach, I realized that some of the merchants there were actually, they preferred to take dollars, but they were settling amongst each other in Bitcoin. And I hadn't even conceived of, of that happening. And granted, that may not be like a revolutionary sort of thing as it relates to the, the entire industry, but um, it, it's sort of a beautiful thing, I think. I mean, these, this is non-government money. People can use it in a way that gives them better opportunities like that, uh, I'm totally behind it. Yeah, it's a whole different conversation, but the relationship of how people use dollars or dollar-like assets, but also Bitcoin in different contexts in their lives is, is a pretty fascinating one. But Sam, listen, this is awesome to have you on the show. Uh, let's definitely do this again. And uh, very excited to see what you guys uh, keep building. Obviously, a very important type of project in an in a opportune moment. So uh, I, I'm optimistic that the optimistic side will uh, will win if we keep building good things. So appreciate your time and, and everything you do. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, back to NLW here. I said at the top, and I'll reiterate here, if you're a little bummed out and looking for inspiration, go check out the entrepreneurs building on Bitcoin and Lightning right now. There is so much energy, enthusiasm, and commitment there. It's kind of impossible not to come away at least a little stoked. And I hope that's what you're feeling right now. From my end, I want to say thanks again one more time to my sponsors, Nexo.io, Circle, and Kraken. And thanks to you guys for listening. Until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about, in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive, and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at chime.com build. That's chime.com build.
Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details.